Well, if you're new with us and you don't know where your children should go, then they can um, come up to my right, your left, and um, our children's ministry director will be glad to take your kids and take care of them. And if I could um, ask you to take your Bibles and turn to the book of Ephesians. This is now the third message out of this book. And I pray that God, in a work of grace, is filling your hearts with a, a new appreciation for his grace and his love and everything he has done to bring sinners to himself. Um, but before I pray and we, we look at what we're going to look at this morning, I just want to remind you of two really important things. One is that tonight at 6 o'clock we will be gathering together to discuss the affairs of our church, including the finances of the church, the direction of the church, and kind of looking back. And um, it's a time where you can ask questions um, so, and for us to hear input from you. So I just want to really encourage you, if this is your church home, even if you're not a member, uh, to come and join us and uh, get a look behind, behind the backside of Disneyland. And um, I have always been... Um, blessed by our annual meetings, and um, which is far different than the annual meetings that I grew up attending as a kid. So I want to invite you to come, and, and um, in the spirit of humility and the spirit of oneness, uh, hear where we're going. That's tonight, and then beginning this week and up to the week of uh, Easter, we will be meeting every Wednesday night to pray. And I just wanted to tell you the emphasis or the focus of those three prayer times. This is in anticipation for the greatest event of all times. That is the death of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus. And we are going to be emphasizing in our times of prayer things emphasized in the prayers of Paul taken out of Ephesians chapter 1 and chapter 3 and praying that God would um, give us a spirit of wisdom and revelation and enlighten our eyes as to what is the the hope to which he has called us, and, and by that, to find ourselves worshiping, praising, and reaching out with that newfound uh, passion for the Lord. So that will be our emphasis, praying through the prayers of Paul in Ephesians. Having said that, and again, tonight at 6, and then every Wednesday up to Easter at 7 o'clock, one hour of prayer and worship. Let me pray. Father, uh, the song that we just sung is, is very true, and it echoes uh, a prayer of David's when he said, Incline your ear, O Lord, and answer me, for I am poor and needy. That every one of us should know in our heart, not just in our intellect, but know that we are, apart from you, impoverished and weak and flawed. But with you, we find strength and grace and mercy that you are a tower of strength and a refuge for your people, that you are our chosen portion and our cup and the desire of our heart to dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of our lives and to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and inquire in his holy temple, all of which was made possible by one and only one person, and that is Jesus, our King, descended from on high, taking on the form of a slave and obeying even to the point of death, death on a cross. And the very one who came so far and so low, you highly exalted to the highest place. And at the name of Jesus, every knee will one day bow and every tongue confess to the glory of you, Father. So we pray in these moments we have that you would feed our souls with your truth. Give us hearts of humility, ready to hear, ready to take in, ready to be changed, and ready to rejoice. 
In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. You know, one of the, one of the clearest memories I have of grammar school, public school, was, uh, was fifth grade. My teacher was Mr. Baker, a big guy with frizzy hair. And he wasn't especially, an especially nice teacher. But he did one thing that I'll never forget. He sat in front of the class on a chair and had us all be quiet. And he read to us a story. And the whole class was quiet through the entire reading of the story. And he read it over a course of, the we- of, of weeks. It was, it was Star Wars. Before I ever saw the movie, I was captivated by him simply reading the story. And then me and my friends would go act out the parts because you want to see yourself in that story. But I was captivated by the story, and that's one of the things, as you know, if you've been here on Wednesday nights with Josh Drake, that that stories are intended to do, and part of why um, the vast majority of the Bible itself is story. Um, They captivate um, Little Red Riding Hood, um, Hansel and Gretel, which is a rather violent one um, for a little kid. Um, you name it, the stories are, are engaging. And um, there are certain components in every story that make it engaging. Every one of any good story has a certain dilemma, problem, or a plight that has to be solved. That's what keeps the tension there and why you, even in a bad movie, you find yourself staying because you want to see how it resolves. Every good story has this plight, this problem, or this dilemma that needs to be worked out. Another commonality in all stories is there's always a, a protagonist or, or, or the good guy in the story. Um, sometimes it's the hero of the story um, that you're rooting for and that you want to see take down the bad guys and so forth. So there's, there's a problem, there's a good guy, and then there's always, normally, typically, in terms of either a situation or a person, a villain or what they call an antagonist. Someone who's the bad guy that you're wanting to see taken down, uh, brought to justice, or destroyed. Those, those three things. In 101 Dalmatians, the, <laughs> the antagonist, the bad person, was Cruella de Vil, who wanted to make fur coats out of the skins of puppies, which is kind of dark for Disney, if you ask me. She's the bad person you want to see brought down. Well, those three basic components of... Hero, major problem, and villain and or antagonist are part of the unfolding story of the Bible. And for those of us who have come to believe that this is the story of humanity, um, the story is true in how we should see the world around us. And the story of the Bible has those three things. It has a, a protagonist or a hero. In one sense, it has a lot of heroes. King David was a hero, and Isaiah was a hero, Moses was a hero, and Noah was a hero. But all those are simply flawed replicas of one major hero. And that hero, which we're going to focus on this morning, is none other than Jesus Christ. He is the protagonist in this great story, the great hero. But there is also an antagonist or antagonists, bad guys, in this story. Now, most of us right now would be quick to think, and justifiably so, that the devil is the antagonist, Uh, and justifiably so, as I I said. Uh, The great angel that God created originally as good with power and beauty who decided in a moment of blinded pride that he was going to usurp God's throne. And it's easy to say he's the antagonist in the story, and in one sense he is. 
But the finger pointing as to who in the story of the Bible is the antagonist must also be pointed somewhere else. And that is into the heart of every human alive. The Bible describes us as fundamentally antagonistic towards God. Now, some people would reject that because they think in terms of extremes. Well, yeah, the atheist who, who wants to erase God from everything, well, yeah, he's antagonistic towards God. Yeah, that in an extreme way. But antagonism is a lot more subtle than that. In the words of Isaiah, it's just simply being a sheep that's gone astray, desiring to go your own way. Uh, the antagonism of self-determinism, of self-sufficiency, all of that is antagonistic towards God. So we are the antagonists in this story. We are the Cruella de Vils, the bad wolf, the witch, Lex Luthor, if you want to, only we are the real antagonists. And one of the things that makes the Bible story so intriguing and distinctive is in the end, the hero comes to save the antagonists, the bad guys. The question is how? And what makes us antagonistic? Now that brings us to the problem. If Jesus is the hero and we are the bad guys along with the main bad guy, then what's the fundamental problem that he has to deliver us from in our antagonism? And that brings us to the problem of what we call sin, which we easily gloss over and don't fully understand the enormity of the problem. So before we get to the protagonist of Jesus, how he is the hero of the story, you have to understand the nature of the problem. Otherwise, you don't understand why he came. So let me just, by way of introduction, just three simple observations about the nature and working of sin and how it destroys. The first observation has to do with what sin is in and of itself. Now, people have defined it variously, and I think these are just ways of saying the same thing. Some have said that the heart of sin is human arrogance, pride, self-exaltation, uh, self-centeredness, and I think all of those at root are true. Another way of saying the same thing is that in the heart of every man, woman, and child is a spirit of self-getting. That is the desire to have more outside the will of God and at the expense of God or other people. And that lives and breathes in every human being. If you don't think so, just look at a child who hasn't been tainted by bad examples yet. You don't have to teach a child to be a self-getter. Um, Johnny sits on the floor. He's done playing with his truck. He ignores it for an hour. His sister Sally comes over and picks up the truck, and what does he do? That truck is mine, even though right now I'm not playing with it, and he pulls it out of her hand, and if he doesn't hit her with it, then he... Um, screams at her. That, 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 that is the closest look as to what the human heart looks like before it gets covered by the layers of how to hide it, which is we get older, we get smarter, we know how to hide that me-centered being. So that is kind of at the very heart of it is this self-getting spirit. But that leads to another observation about the nature of sin, and that is it is communal in terms of the burden of suffering it creates. Some contemporary ideas would say that sin is a private, isolated thing that just affects the person who does it, which is completely false. Sin has a malignant 
depths to it in which it brings the burden of suffering on those around you. They bear the weight of your sin. And the people who bear the weight of sin are those who love the person who sins the most. So, for example, the, the husband who has a difficult addiction to gambling and has racked up credit card debt, has been confronted by his wife because of his sin, who is it that bears the suffering of her husband's sinful choice? But the wife. She bears it. She shares in it. That the father who watches his son uh, just kind of uh, implode with drug addiction. You know, it's not just the son that experiences the suffering of the addiction. It's the father who weeps. I watched a, a father one time just completely beside himself, overwhelmed with grief and pain because his son was in prison. Sin is not an isolated suffering. It, it brings suffering on those, and especially those who love the sinner the most. I don't suffer from somebody in Peru, personally I don't suffer, um, who has a problem with pornography. But I guarantee his wife, daughter, or son does. So it's shared. It's communal. That's the second observation. And out of that, this is also both biblical and it is experiential, it separates and fragments and shatters human relationships. First of all, shattered our relationship with God. That first-hand fellowship that we enjoyed with him at the beginning was shattered by sin. And that's what it does not only in the human-divine relationship, but in human-to-human relationships. Now, we may bear with one another's sins if they're small and in small doses. But as soon as the weight of the sin, either because of consistency or because of weight, that is, it's an egregious, terrible sin, human relationships can't bear that. So they break, which is why marriages fall apart and families fall apart. That's the devastation caused by sin. So those three things have to be kept in mind that it, at its heart is a self-centered, um, self-getting spirit. It, it causes suffering on others, especially those who love the sinner the most. And in the end, it separates, divides, fragments, and shatters. Now, that's important for understanding how Jesus came as the hero to save us. If you get the diagnosis wrong, you don't understand it. Or you deal with it in a superficial manner. Something else to be noticed is that in the thousands of years that man has existed on this planet, no one has been able to fix that. With all of our medical advancements and and scientific knowledge and technology, we still can't fix this, which is why you open the newspaper, watch the news, everything's coming apart. And all of the political solutions, educational solutions, don't fix it. That is, we are fundamentally, and this is undeniable, Historically, we are helpless to change that part of us. This moral mutation has happened in the human soul, and that is fundamentally the problem that works itself out in the suffering of sin and also the separation that it causes. So with that in mind now, protagonist, the hero of the story. If that is at its root, the problem, then that is at root what the hero came to deliver us from, from our sin. Which brings us to to Jesus and the centrality of what he's come to do. We've been looking at this great plan that God is orchestrating through history to save 
fallen, sinful humanity. That is to save the antagonists or the bad guys. Now, that saving plan all comes through one person. And here I want to start back at Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. And this really is a fountain verse for the whole book, which we've looked at last week, or at least we started there, and we're going to start here this morning. Is, is blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Now, there's two key phrases in there that are absolutely important for this message. The last phrase, that he has blessed us with every spiritual blessing, tells us the extent and lavishness of God's gift to us. When he says spiritual blessing, that isn't to be thought of as opposed to physical blessing, because as a part of the spiritual blessing, eventually we get resurrected bodies and a renewed heavens and earth. So it includes the physical as well. But it is every blessing. In other words, he didn't hold back everything to be offered to us in terms of God's gracious, lavish love. Everything is offered. Every spiritual blessing. But every spiritual blessing, the last part, all comes through these two words that are crucial to our entire understanding of the Bible, to our understanding of the gospel and the nature and the center of salvation. It all comes to us in Christ. Um, Has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And you find this centeredness that our solution comes exclusively through Jesus reiterated over and over and over, rapid fire through these chapters. And I'm just going to give you a sample. Chapter 1, verse 4. Even as he chose us, and I replaced the pronouns with the word Christ to help us a little bit. Even as he chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world, or chapter 1, verse 5. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Christ Jesus. 1, 6. He has blessed us in the beloved, that is Christ. So we're blessed in the one that God loves, namely the Son. 1.7, in Christ we have redemption through Christ's blood, according to his purpose which he set forth in Christ. Chapter 1, verse 9. Chapter 1, verse 10, a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Christ. 1.10, 1.11, in Christ we have obtained an inheritance. Now he's switching to the future. 1.13, in Christ you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of salvation, and believed in Christ were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. And you could go on and on and on into chapter, the rest of chapter 1, into chapter 2, chapter 3, and see it all centers there. That all of the blessings come exclusively through Jesus. Now, think of the scope in terms of time. That we were chosen, eternity past, in Christ. That stretches all the way back. He stretches forward. Our inheritance, which is a future concept, is inherited in Christ. So it goes from back to forward. Then it goes down into the depths of where we were dead in our trespasses and sins, and we are raised in Christ, up to the highest point where we are seated with Christ. So from past to future, from bottom to top, all of that is experienced by us in and through Christ. We are not to understand God's love, God's power, God's wisdom, God's grace as coming to us in any other way 
except through Christ, which is why the church for centuries has insisted that there is no other name by which a man may be saved. That is not human arrogance to say that. That's simply a statement of divine revelation. In Christ, it all comes. He is the hero, the Father's hero sent to us. So it all centers on him. But now to get a little bit more specific, how in particular does he work, this hero work to make all of these spiritual blessings possible? One, Jesus is the hero of of redemption. Now, we use that term redemption in a broad sense and a narrow sense, and I'm about to use this in the narrow sense. Redemption. Uh, Jesus is the hero of redemption. Now, if you've been in church for a while, you're probably familiar with the word redemption. If you're not, it may sound ambiguous or archaic, and you may not know what it means. It simply means to free somebody by paying a debt. Liberation at the expense of somebody or some, um, some gift. Price paid. Of all of the bad movies that Stephen King made, and he made a lot of bad movies, most of which I've never seen, and the ones that I did see, I wish I didn't see, he did get the idea of redemption right when he produced Shawshank Redemption. The story of a man who is condemned for a crime he didn't commit, sentenced to suffer in a prison that's infected with corruption. And this innocent man suffering under this corrupt system does things to the benefit of others. And by the time you get to the very end of the movie, the prisoners in the prison are liberated from this corruption at the expense of a man who suffers innocently. Now, where did Stephen King get an idea like that? Except to say it's a distant echo of the story of the Bible, of of, of God taking on human flesh in a body that could bleed and suffer um, and never sin and then come up before a trial and judges and, and though innocent, sentenced and condemned to the death penalty and, and ironically enough in his death is release and liberation. That is what he did. That's the idea of redemption. He paid the price for our freedom. So that, the second part of the verse there, and this is chapter 1, verse 7, if you want the verse, in him, we, that is Christ, we have redemption, and that is the payment of the price for our freedom. And then he explains it more fully as to what that means in terms of our sin, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. This forgiveness is offered through this debt paid. Now you might stop and pause, and, and sometimes Christians just need to hear things in a slightly different way to give it new light. We might ask ourselves, so what, like, seriously, why did this debt need to be paid to God? Why couldn't it have been done a different way? And, and um, it fails to understand the nature of how sin works, especially in the divine human relationship. Now, we can easily think that sin is simply some generic abstract infraction of some generic law or rule that's written down, as if it's not personal, as if it's not personally offending, 
But that's not how sin is looked at in the Bible. It's highly relational and highly personal. As I said in observation number two, sin is communal in its suffering. It causes others, especially those who love you the most, to suffer, to bear that burden. I guarantee you, since God made humans in his own image, and though we are fallen, as much as we are able to love one another in our fallen state, God loves his people. And by his, I use that just universally. He loves the people he has created more than you and I ever will. So if a wife feels the burden and the pain of the husband's adultery and bears the suffering because she loves him, then imagine the bearing that God the Father had to experience in your sin. See, it's not just his justice that we have offended, and we have but offended the graciousness of his love. Now, that puts it in a bit of a a different category. You realize, wow, just like my sin hurts people and they bear the burden, so God bore the weight in a very real and personal way. That brings sin into a whole new light. It's not abstract or generic or some little infraction. It's highly personal. And deeply offending to the one who loves humans the most. Now God in this bearing the burden of human sin can do one of two things. He can give us over to our self-getting inclination which causes one another to suffer, including God, if that word suffering can be used with reference to him. I certainly believe God feels things. And then separation. He can leave us to that, and according to the Bible, some will. And that is, in the essence, what hell is. If separation is the final outcome of the self-getting spirit, then hell is the final separation of the human from God's love and goodness. And I, just two cents, an aside, this is not two cents. Um, I don't think the Lord is going to stretch his finger out on the day of judgment and he's going to say, condemned to hell, and the person is going to be on his knees pleading for mercy. That's not the picture that I get from the Bible. The hell is basically giving the self-centered person what he or she wants. It's the idea of him giving over. Which means in the end, hell is what the self-getting person wants. And in that self-centered state, suffers in his own vacuum of selfishness. And that's that's part of the pain and misery of hell itself. So God has and will, to some who do not turn, he will give them over to what they want. One person called hell the great homage to human freedom. I don't want God, so I'll go to hell. There'll be no one in hell who doesn't want to be there. That's one option. The other option is to bear the sin. 
is to continue to love graciously and mercifully. And that, of course, is where the hero again comes in. As Jesus comes and bears it, and he just doesn't bear it for a while, and he just doesn't bear it to one particular point, but he bears it all the way down. He bears the sin of our self-getting, self-centered ways of who we are as well as what we do. He bears it, and he bears it to the point of separation so that he's the one who's cut off the essence of hell instead of us. So he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He experiences that complete separation. And that's how he bears it, dealing with the deepest problem of humankind that politics can't touch and neither can education. It, it can only be by the hero coming in, bearing the burden all the way down. That's what he does. Because God is different than us. If sin by nature is self Getting, then, as Tim Keller writes, uh, one of my new favorite authors, um, then the heart of God is a self-giver. The Father giving himself to the Son, and the Son giving himself to the Father, and the Spirit giving himself to the glory of the Son. And out of their self-giving nature, they give to us and bear the burden of our sin. It's the nature of the God who came, hero came to do that, to do the work of redemption. He's the hero of redemption, of, of paying the price. But that's part of it. Jesus is also the hero of recreation. Because if one stands forgiven, because the sin is, has been carried, paid for, what about the heart? The heart is still morally twisted. Mutated. So you could very well have a sin-minded person forgiven of sin, which only leaves the job half done. Another theme that winds its way through the, this book of Ephesians is that of creation, new creation, of new life. Just as the redemptive work is accomplished by him bearing and dying, a new creative work is done through his rising. And that's the second part that's very, very important in terms of how it works in our lives. So here's the thread in Ephesians. Ephesians 2.4, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. It's life. And it's based on and in union with the resurrection of Jesus. But it is a very real life that changes that inner inclination. Ephesians 2.10, using different words, for we are his workmanship created. Created. A new creation. In Christ Jesus for good works. And those works are works of love, which is the opposite of a self-getting spirit. This new creation is now changing God's people into a self-giving spirit and therefore resembling and identifying and expressing who God is in the way that we live. Or chapter 2, verse 15, that he, Christ, might create, in other words, create new life in himself, one new man in place of the two, so making peace. So you have this idea of new life and creation, and that's what he came to do, and that new creation begins in the human heart. 
It's planting of the seed of the life of God himself, which is fundamentally self-giving so that now there's a reorientation. What I'm trying to say is that Jesus came to take care of the sin as the hero, but he also came to give us new life and recreate the human heart. And it begins the moment that you believe. That new life begins to take root, and if nourished over a lifetime, then a person will become increasingly more loving, more self-sacrificial. Why? Because it's the life of God working itself out. The new creation working itself out. But he's the one who did it. What thousands of years of human history, technology, and education, and science couldn't do to the human heart, Jesus and Jesus alone did. No, no pastor, no counselor, no psychotherapist can change that in you. All they can do is guide new life once it's there. But Jesus is the key to the transformation of the human heart, my heart, your heart, and he and he only can do it. So he is, on the one hand, he is the hero of redemption, of bearing sin all the way down and sacrificing himself and paying the debt. On the other hand, he is the one who rises, offering to us a new life, which reverses the fall. See, he's dealing with the problem at a fundamental root level. Now, those two are foundational as to how the hero works. But there's, we might ask, to what end? To what end does he die and rise? Is there redemption and recreation? The putting off of the bad and the giving of the new. And I think the simple answer is reconciliation that in the end Jesus is the hero of of reconciliation one of the most pervasive themes in this book is the idea of oneness or unity or reconciliation all of which are near synonyms so when Paul describes for example the idea of the plan he describes the purpose of Christ in the plan as this as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, in heaven, and on earth. All the things that have been shattered by this sinful pulse are now being united in him. There's a theme of unity. We find it again in chapter 2, verse 16, that he might reconcile us both, Gentile and Jew, another major separation into one um, to God through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And you find it over and over and over again. So in chapter 4, for example, you hear him say that there is one body and one spirit. There is one hope to which you have been called. There is one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. It's one, one, one. He's bringing it all back together. Fathers and sons and children. And since there's so much family terminology used, it's bringing the family back together. Reconciliation. Now, let me just pause and, and just reflect for a minute on what, what it takes to be reconciled. Because reconciliation and forgiveness are two different things. You can't have reconciliation without forgiveness, but you can have forgiveness without reconciliation. I can forgive my enemy who doesn't repent by either remitting the debt or just releasing the reins of vengeance and saying, God, you take care of them. I'm trusting you. That is baseline forgiveness. But that does not necessarily imply or mean reconciliation. In addition to forgiveness, certain conditions have to be met for true reconciliation to happen, both on a divine level and a human level. One, both parties must have a desire. 
to be one again. That's why when, when you're dealing with a troubled marriage, if one partner wants to reconcile and the other one doesn't, it never works. There has to be mutual desire on both parties where there's a conflict to want to reconcile. Desire. That's condition number one. Condition number two. There has to be repentance on the offending party's side. There is no true reconciliation unless the person who messed up says, listen, I screwed up bad. So is one of the... One of the Examples I gave, the father whose son is, decides he's going in a direction with drugs that is just taking him down the wrong road and steals from his parents as a result to get drugs that he needs. If there's to be true reconciliation, he's got to come clean with his parents and say, listen, I screwed up big time, and I see how I've hurt you, and I'm sorry. Without that, there is no reconciliation. There must be a spirit of genuine broken repentance. So there must be a desire to reconcile, there must be genuine repentance, and there must be a restoration of trust. Trust. The offending party who's done the damage has to trust that they're actually forgiven by the other person. And on a human level, there has to be a restoration of trust that you're not going to do that again. Now, it's a little bit different on the divine level because God does not trust us. He may trust the grace at work in us, but not us implicitly. So you have these three conditions that are required for reconciliation so we can be one again. Desire, brokenness on the offending party's side, and you also have to have this restoration of trust. Those are required for reconciliation. They're really coming back together where your soul to soul, heart to heart, and love is restored to happen. Now here's the thing. Left to ourselves, we don't meet those conditions. As I said at the beginning, the human spirit is fundamentally antagonistic towards God and way too proud to say, Lord, I'm just, not only have I done wrong things, but the whole disposition of my soul is wrong. We don't possess in and of ourselves the desire to do that. We don't possess in and of ourselves to genuinely repent of our sins. And we don't have the strength or desire within ourselves to trust forgiveness. So God has worked. He's borne the burden of sin. But what about this other side of the reconciliation equation? And here's the beauty of God. Is that in Christ, he worked both sides of the equation. Not only did he bear the burden of sin, therefore paying the price so that we could be forgiven, but in Christ recreates the human heart by faith so that now a desire to come to the table and be reconciled is there. That a genuine desire to be broken before the Lord in an honest way that is not fearful of judgment any longer, but is willing to say, listen, Lord, you are righteous and I am unrighteous. But it's grace that did that. It's the new life within us that does that. And in the end, it's the new life within us that enables us to trust that forgiveness. So he works both sides of the reconciliation table. He just doesn't sit at one side of the table saying, I've done my part, now you do your part. No, he comes over and the person of Christ gives us life so that he moves us to come to the table. You see, the whole thing is just surrounded and upheld and and permeated by the grace of God to bring us back together. He worked both sides of the equation to bring us back to him. Now, that just sounds like, to some perhaps, it sounds like cold, dark, impractical theology. 
To me, it doesn't. But to some, it may. Let me just put this in human terms as to how important this should be to the human soul, to know that this is what Jesus did. Like he came to do the work of paying and redemption, and he came to recreate my heart so that I would desire God, would be broken before him without fear of judgment, and would trust in what Christ has done. And thereby now stand reconciled to him as a full-fledged family member face to face, and we're one again. There's no more outstanding debt to be done. There's no more offenses that need to be born. They're done. Think of it in terms of your own personal relationships, how it feels. How it feels when someone that you love and yourself have an offense that has momentarily fractured your relationship. How does it feel? Maybe when you've had a fight with your wife. And I bet some here had arguments coming. And right now you're thinking, man, there's just this big gaping chasm between me and my wife right now because of those words said in the car. You know what I'm talking about right now? Or it could be a friend, whatever. It creates an inward agitation, frustration, a sense of sadness, depression, as if you've lost something core to your being. And what it feels like to work through it and get to the place where you're one again is like coming home. And just this last week, we were, my family, we went down to Pismo Beach and camped for a, for a few days. Just get time away with the kids. They're on spring break. And um, I asked my son if I could use this, and he said, sure, sure, Dad. I told him, I'll never throw you under the bus. If I do, I'll throw myself under the bus. But, you know, my son's going to be 14. And I, I, I hear it's pretty common, but fathers and teenage boys have friction. Sometimes. I don't remember, Wednesday probably, um, we had an altercation, my son Daniel and I, and, and it was over a piece of electronic equipment. Isn't that just like a man and a son? <laughs> Tools, electronics, or cars. We had an altercation, and words were said. And, and I, I, I am proud of my son in, in the healthy sense of the word, and I love him dearly, and I know he loves me. I do. But in this moment, we exchanged words. And it was late at night, about 10 o'clock. And we both went to bed unreconciled. And I know how that feels. At that moment, a loss of close relationship with someone you love and loves you, it's like three cylinders in an eight-cylinder heart stop functioning. And you breathe a little harder. Because there's a fracture, even if it's a momentary one. That's how it feels to not be reconciled. Well, the next morning, we got up, and I knew, hey, and I knew he wanted to reconcile. There's the desire on that side, and I wanted to reconcile, so we sat across the table with each other, and and we talked it through. The words that I said the night before were true in their content, but wrong in spirit. So he dealt with his part and owned up to it, and I dealt with my part and owned up to it. And there was that meeting of the heart-to-heart, a reconciliation, and I did what no junior high boy likes. I should call him junior high man. I reached across the table, and I grabbed his head, and I kissed his forehead. He hates that. (laughs) He hates that. He did say I could share it, though. 
and all was like it was supposed to be again. There's an agitation and a frustration and a lostness that's out there that people are trying to fill. And they try to fill it with human relationships, and they try to fill it with things, but it just doesn't work. Because there's one home base for the human heart, and that is to know that you're reconciled to God. And to know that in the person of the Son, the Father reaches down and across the table, working both sides, and he grabs you and he kisses you on the forehead and says, welcome home. And that's home base for the human heart. And brothers, sisters, believers in this room, that is, that is the truth that sets the soul free and it changes everything. To live in light of that reality each day. That is a life-producing, joy-producing truth of such depth to know that the hero of the story has accomplished all of this to bring us back to where we should be, the home base of the human heart, which is reconciliation with God forever and ever and ever, the likes of which and the intimacy with which we will never get to the end to, and it is life-changing. And if you don't know that and you're here and you've not ever believed this or experienced this, this is the... This is a place where you say, do I really believe that? And while I do believe that faith is the moving of God in your life, I don't think God turns away people who pray and pray and say, Lord, give me that kind of faith and let that new life take root in my heart and reconcile me to you through the work that Christ has done in redemption and recreation and reconciliation. I hope you live in that truth, and I hope you believe in that truth because it is a fountain of, tr a fountain of, of living water that uh, changes the way we view life. Let me pray for you. Father, I just thank you for your truth. Thank you most of all for the great hero of the story and that you just didn't destroy the antagonists, but you redeemed them. Um, you paid our debt and you recreated our hearts with the promise of recreating our bodies in this world and reconciling us to you heart to heart, life to life. We're just thankful, thankful that you're that good, that you are merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and that you have given to us a hero whose name is Jesus, before whom every knee will bow. To your honor and glory, Father, just bring that truth home to us and help us to live in its light. In Christ's name, amen.